Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Sometimes the best part of a big meal is the leftovers. There's nothing like taking a little bit of everything from the night before, heating it up, and settling in for a second round. And for the second year in a row, just in time for the holidays, that's what we're doing here at Glass Houses. This is our second Odds and Ends episode, where we take pieces of conversations from the year that got left on the cutting room floor. We hear so many great stories from the people we've interviewed that we can't fit them all into each episode. This year, we've got two dishes of second helpings. The first is from our interview with Steve Cohen, Billy's longtime lighting director, and John Small, who's been involved with Billy since the late 60s. They'll share stories of how they began working with Billy, including some never-before-heard stories from their youth. Next is a sneak peek of our upcoming episode about the Nylon Curtain. Here, engineer Bradshaw Lee talks about reconstructing the album for an Atmos-enhanced audio mix earlier this year. He also gave a few behind-the-scenes stories from his time at A&R Recording with Billy and Phil Ramone, and you'll hear his thoughts on the music business back then and what it's like now. So throw on your sweatpants, uncork that half-empty bottle of wine, and settle in for a helping of odds and ends from some of our favorite interviews of 2022. All right, we made it another year, uh, and just tonight we're on what hour three of of recording. Yeah, and I'm getting tired, my friend, <laughs> but it's all been worth it. Not gonna lie, getting a little punchy, but you know what? Yeah, we do it for you guys. <laughs> we love it. We love you. So we're we're here for it, silliness and all. So uh, yeah, no, we got a nice fun one today. Uh, you know what's funny about doing this podcast is we have unlimited bandwidth. We still know we need to adhere to some sort of length limitations you know i have to make judicious cuts a lot there's a lot of like transgression uh does you know there's is transgression the word no tangents Di- digression digressions. Yeah, there are a lot of tiger there are a lot of tigressions. digressions and tangents digressions <laughs> i told you i'm getting there man <laughs> there are a lot <laughs> that's a thundercat stuff coming back to me <laughs> Uh, no, but I mean, we so, this being a perfect example, if this wasn't an odds and ends episode, I had to raise a blaze the hell out of this and audition already. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of um, digressions and tangents, sir, that, uh, <laughs> that you know, I cut out. I don't know, man. Uh, maybe it came from being a newspaper editor. Just, uh, you know, you want to get to the meat of the story and, and yeah. I get a little obsessed with putting things on the record that eh, how much people care about at least our own BS. And then, <laughs> but the, at the same time in keeping an episode on theme, we'll cut out things that people are saying. And, you know, a lot of them are just like a little stray comment here and there, but sometimes we get that block of stuff and I'm like, this is great. I am glad that these found a home and I am glad that you have a good ear for shaping the conversations. Jack and I will have a topic, especially if it's an episode where it's just the two of us. He and I will each dive into our individual research, but we won't talk about it ahead of time because we want the recording to feel as natural and normal as possible. We'll come together and start the recording session. And the one drawback of, of that is you tend to have 
tangents and you know things going off topic, things going one way or the other for better or for worse. What may end up a 58 minute episode will possibly be an hour and 50 minutes of conversation that gets whittled down. He will get that digital razor blade out and start cutting, pasting, moving things into place. The essence and the meat of everything is there and across, but all the extraneous gets lifted out and we still have a seamless conversation. Michael's being way too kind because he's leaving out the two weeks where he texts me every other day and is like, um, how's that episode coming along? And I'm like, yeah, I'll have it for you tomorrow. And then three days goes by. He's like, uh, so it's after tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, dude. Oh, you don't know what's been going on here. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't speak to how long it could, could take you sometimes. <laughs> That's a whole other story altogether. <laughs> My thing this year is I'm like, sorry, Mike, the drama llama has the drama. back. <laughs> Look, man, I'm in like two, two plus bands. I got two kids, four cats. Something's always going on. Somewhere. And a podcast co-host <laughs> and who's podcast, bugging you all yeah. the time. Record, do all this remotely. He's in Eastern time. I'm in Pacific. There's just a lot to kind of keep track of and get get figured out. And so I'll go in and do another pass and maybe just smooth out some of the edges. Or if I find a couple extra extraneous things or a couple ums and ands, clean it up a little more. Then I bring that into my session and I do the final edit and final mix. So I bring the conversation files, the interview files all into a big session I add our intro, I add all the music, supporting music that we do, I do all the transitions, and then get the final mix together and listen to it once time, once it's mixed down, get it uploaded to Podbean, and it's out that Tuesday. So it's a it's a pretty wild schedule, and I think hey, both you and I are very glad that it doesn't completely fall on one of our shoulders. So check it out. So we got um, some uh, juicy outtakes with John Small, who is arguably been associated with Billy for longer than anyone. These guys were in the hassles together in the 60s. John's pretty much been in the camp almost the entire time since. And Steve Cohen, who's been the lighting director, I guess early 70s? I think mid-70s. I feel like Brian Ruggles came on in like 73, 4. Steve, not far after that, I don't think. And then we have more from our our good friend, Brad Lee. Now, listen, man, I got to say this. I'm not putting much of a through line through these when I'm editing because it is just odds and ends. But I got to say, read between the lines on this. You're going to learn, not in so many words, but you're going to learn you know, what it takes to truly be successful. I think not only in the music business, but in sort of in life. These are people that they're not the ones that are going to come out harder on their sleeve and telling you how arduous the work was and how much they had to do and how much they had to struggle. It's all in the asides. It's all in what you infer from the stories. When you hear about nights nobody went to sleep, when you hear about getting your hump busted by your boss, you know, or, yeah. or whatever else, and and being thrown into situations and risking it all to, you know, take take a chance on something, having the gumption to raise your hand and say, I'll do it, and then having the perseverance to to see through all sorts of different challenges. These are things that we get to highlight that you're never gonna see in a biopic, if I may go on a tangent for a moment, you know, that's always bugged me. The montages they'll do, like your Ray Charles movies and your Johnny Cash movies, where all these grinding through the clubs is reduced to like two and a half minutes over a hit song, you know, and then the montage comes crashing to a halt when they meet the guy that catapults them to stardom. And it's like, dude, you are completely glossing over the years of uncertainty and hard work and blood, sweat, and tears mm-hmm. just to get to this. And you're making it seem like a foregone conclusion when it wasn't. Yeah. As much as I enjoyed some of those movies, I always thought that aspect of them was bullshit. 
you know, I learned that the hard way myself, you know, uh, through a couple of different bands and a couple of different endeavors. And when I hear these, these people, you know, recount these stories again, not being like, Oh man, we had to do this. We had to do that. But just when they tell it as a matter of course, right. I'm saying, man, that's some wisdom to walk away with. Someone once told me that like, if you want to get into, you know, the business, you know, what do you recommend? You know, I told someone, I'm like, you know, find someone who's been in the business for years, find a way to apprentice, to shadow them, to do something and just listen and watch, pay attention. What's not necessarily going to be verbalized, but you're going to see, you know, 30 years of experience in a session or, you know, whatever, you know, that's the intangible that needs to be observed. And it's so fascinating seeing all of these intangibles illustrated with various aspects of Billy's career over the years. I don't know if this will make it in, but I'll tell this story real quick. I might've mentioned, I don't know if I'll cut it yet. In one of our last episodes, you know, I got a new job over this, over the summer. And, um, it was, you know, it was a big step up for me. Uh, you know, I've been doing digital marketing for a while now. I'm stepping, I stepped into a larger search engine optimization SEO position in a larger company, and uh, I was like, oh, oh my, oh look at this. I'm like, I, I think, I, I think life is back on track. I have healthcare for the first time, steady in like you know ten years. I have a 401k. Like, all right, I, I, I better not screw this up. Well, you know, I'm, I'm working remotely, and I met the uh, the VP of marketing. And the first thing I thought once I got off the horn with him or off the Zoom with him was if I was in an interview with this guy, I wouldn't have gotten hired. He really knew his stuff and, and I felt, felt myself um, sort of struggling. And so I thought back to the one year of my life when I was a full-time musician in a cover band and uh, I didn't do well. I'd like to think I'm a pretty good drummer and I'll just say that I wasn't playing my best then and uh, you know I also didn't get along with those guys at all, which certainly didn't help matters. But you know, years later... You know, I realized what I did wrong was I was in an okay cover band and I had cracked the code at that level and I was doing fine. And then I graduated to a band that played for bigger crowds, more nights a week. We were playing three to five days a week, not for more money, mind you, because I'm pretty sure the, uh, the band leader was screwing us, but uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole nother thing. What I, I realized the dumb thing I did was graduate to the more challenging and more, you know, potentially lucrative opportunity. I upgraded to the better band, but I didn't upgrade my habits. I didn't practice any more than I did before. I didn't put any more heart into it than I did before. You know, I really didn't rise to the challenge. And, you know, so for this job, I was like, I realized like at that moment, I was like, oh, this is like this again. Like I've graduated from what I was doing before and I have to put in more time now. I got to be taking classes and I got to be like working a little overtime and, and doing this and doing that. And right around this time, you know, we had spoken with uh, John and Steve and uh, this made it into the original episode. <laughs> they talked about just how, you know, how ludicrous everything was leading up to Yankee Stadium and that, you know, Steve just had to stay up the entire night before trying to figure out how to make the lights work in a stadium when they'd been doing arenas pretty much zero prep time. And not only because it was a new, you know, because it was a larger area, but also because it had to be lit to be caught on film, which is much less forgiving than digital. And then you also remember that they lost their prep day because of the Nelson Mandela. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest with you, I think, you know, that interview carried me through the next six weeks of work. Anytime I was like, this is stupid. I'm spending so much time or whatever. I'd be like, nope. Remember what Steve Cohen had to do. You got to do it too. It, and it ain't even nearly as stressful. So <laughs> just shut up and do it. <laughs> so that being said, we have two sizable outtakes for you. 
First one is a continuation of our recent conversations with Brad Lee. He talked about the nylon curtain and he talked about working with Jim Boyer. So we have some more of his insights on the music industry in general, perspective on uh, on different recording mediums and, and techniques and things like that, and just some funny-ass anecdotes. Then we're going to go back to that conversation with Stephen Cohen and John Small. We have a special treat, a hitherto for unknown story about Billy in his youth, which also, which is also very inspiring, <laughs> uh, featuring an instrument we've never known him to play since the time of this story, but it's pretty cool. On that note, let's jump back into our conversation with Bradley as he shares some great memories and stories on working in the music business. How you been? You've been busy. I've been good. I've been really crazy, which is very fortunate for somebody in my field. Yeah, that's a good problem to have for sure. Yeah, a lot of travel though. So it's starting to starting to take its toll. Do you do a lot of uh, mixing and stuff at home or do you have to go in? No, I only um, I mix primarily at home. And uh-huh. on the nylon curtain at most mixes, I went back and forth between a studio and home. I did the majority of the work at home and mm-hmm. then would go into a studio and double check in on the 16 speakers. How was it uh, getting used to Atmos? Was that like a big uh, leap? I was very skeptical about Atmos. I thought it was a dumb gimmick, but I have to say, I think it's got some cool things about it. And just in my personal case, and I say this not to brag, but just because it's something I'm very proud of. I actually prefer the Atmos version of the nylon curtain on headphones than I do the original stereo. I think it really added a lot of depth to it. And I think it was really well aligned with Billy's intention on that record, which he said, I want it to be a great headphone record. And so yeah. I think it sounds a little bit more expansive. You know, on headphones, I like it. On, on, on speakers, I, I don't like it nearly as much because, for an example, on the Nylon Curtain, one of the problems is uh, that's a rock and roll band. And those records were not nitpicked over. They went for feel. When you listen to it in stereo, it all works as a unit. But as soon as, let's say, you have the bass and the drums in the front speakers and you move the acoustic guitars out to the side, now you're really hearing every instrument isolated. To me, it sort of unglues the song and it falls apart. And, you know, the guys mm. were still sorting out guitar parts. Uh, you know, that, was, that stuff was done quick for feel. So you're still yeah. kind of figuring out guitar parts. And if you bury it in the track here and there, you won't notice that. But as soon as you Mm -hmm. hand it to separate speakers, suddenly you're hearing the guitar, you know, Doug's in the middle and Russell's on this side and David's on that side. And and I think it can not do the song justice. But in the case of the Nylon Curtain, there was some room to play with that. As a matter of fact, I saw, looked at some websites early on and there was criticisms like the guy's not using the ceiling speakers. Well, why the fuck would I want the music (laughs) to come out of the ceiling? (laughs) <laughs> right. You know, the helicopter flies over your head. You know, that makes the, sense. Yeah. You right. know, the chorus in Saigon is above and behind you, sort of like angels singing, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, as far as sticking a piano coming out of the ceiling, you know, that's that's not me. As a matter of fact, there's a great <laughs> quote from Alan Parsons, and it's I don't have it on this computer, but it's something to the effect of, you know, hi-fi people play music to hear their sound system as opposed to playing their sound system to hear music. Back when, you know, vinyl was 
the, I mean, how many plants were there in America? You know, just oh, like Columbia, a- Columbia had tons of them just for them, you know? Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I don't know if you know the process of making lacquers. It's a, th- it's a thin metal. It's an aluminum that's, that's layered with like a perfect lacquer, uh, like you would put on a guitar. And that's what they cut into. And the one plant in the United States that made lacquers, I think, burned down two years ago. I think I heard so about no- that because it's been like a backlog, right? Of, uh, yeah, so the, of there, was, there, was, there was a Japanese company that was making them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so now everybody, I think, has to get them from that Japanese company. You know, as the demand, I noticed, started to increase, manufacturing capabilities didn't follow suit at least to the to degree. So you still had a relatively small number of places making vinyl in the last 10 years. But as the demand grew, and then when you introduced things like Record Store Day, you'd have twice a year bottlenecks with the majors. <laughs> so it, yeah. it, it just, it just kind of got a little chaotic. Just to go on a tangent real quick, if you don't mind, what you feeling on the vinyl renaissance? Because I've heard people really love it. I've heard people say like, look, man, it just doesn't sound as clear and this is all ornamentation. I have to, it's funny, I, I built a new phono preamp about six months ago and I've been too, actually I built it because what I wanted to do was get, I thought I had the original nylon curtain and vinyl and I knew I was mixing this in Atmos. So I wanted to do a real clean, because I never would play that record. Uh-huh. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. play, I don't play Billy Joel records. I worked on them. Yeah. Right. I get them. They're burned into my brain. So I thought I probably had a pristine original vinyl. Mm-hmm. of nylon curtain so i got built a new preamp to transfer it and I, and then i didn't have the disc and i got the master files from sony so i think there's something cool about vinyl i think the majority of people will never hear it because they don't have the proper playbacks you know like we used to, we listened on klh 11s man we listened on speakers that had 10 inch woofers and there's a lot of shit vinyl being done there is okay. a lot of vinyl that is just being transferred from a digital file. It's just, it's like a tape copy. You're transferring yeah. the digital file onto vinyl. So in that case, I don't quite get it. Where I think for me, it would have some magic is to go back and just pull out that original pressing. Now, there are people that are doing, like Joe Nino uh, at Sterling Sound is obsessed mm-hmm. with uh-huh. uh, him and Barry Wolfson. So like Sterling Sound does do really good cutting a vinyl. I also don't know what the status of pressing is. The one thing about vinyl was you can't take an analog and transfer it to vinyl. You just can't make a copy. I mean, maybe some things you can, but it mm-hmm. has to be manipulated. It, it, it has to be altered in order to fit the parameters of vinyl. I have a great video about it on my YouTube channel if you want to take a look where yeah. I explain it completely. The mastering engineer would have to alter it. So now you cut it. The first thing that we would do is we would take that test cut from the mastering studio and we'd get, I would get one, Jim would get one, Phil would get one, Bill would get one. And then Phil would go, take it to all your friend's house and play it because you can cut a record that's better than you can play. So people on cheaper high fives, you could play a record that could play on a good high five, but skip on a cheaper high five. So you listen oh. to the fidelity and, and see how that is. And then what happens is they, they, they hit the pressing plant, but before they do the full run, they do a test pressing. They, they stamp a few of them mm-hmm. and they send them to you. And then you listen to them and go, yeah, this one sounds okay. This one doesn't sound okay. There was a Joe Jackson record that I loved. It was on vinyl and he did virgin vinyl, which makes a difference. You hold up to a light, you can see through it. And it mm-hmm. even said on the cover, turn your volume up because it's cut softer and it's on virgin vinyl. 
So there's a lot of steps that there has to be expertise. You know, it's fortunate that a place like Sterling Sound has always been cutting. They've never stopped cutting. Mm-hmm. And they have a young guy that's Ted Jensen's sort of little protege. He's just obsessed with it. They're going to get yeah. a good cut there. What do you think is like the best use of Atmos then? If you can't be doing like rock and roll on it. Well, not that you can't, but you, you know. know. I mean, first of all, I haven't heard it. But first of all, anything live. I okay. think it was fantastic for Atmos, you know, especially mm-hmm. like if you could take a classical recording and yeah. put mics around Carnegie Hall. And when you sit in the middle of your room that you hear it, I think it's great. It would be great for someone like Zappa. It would be great mm. for Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm looking at, at the possibility. I don't know if I mix any more of Billy's stuff. It's sort of like, well, what do you do with a stranger? How do you expand right. that without tearing it apart? Yeah, I've right. heard some Atmos stuff that I just really can't stand. You know, the one thing about the, on the speakers, what happens is when you mix an Atmos, there's this 3D representation that you kind of get approximated in headphones. So if you play something just off to the right or the left or slightly behind you or something, you kind of feel it that way. But as soon as you put it on speakers, I feel you lose that. And what happens is suddenly you're hearing instruments just come out of different speakers. And I've heard some stuff that's dreadful. And then I've heard... Giles Martin remix of Come Together by the Beatles, where it's coming oh. from all over the place. And it's like, oh, I love that. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. I think it really depends on the music and the treatment. I think it is possible to just make stuff sound a little bit more uh, immersive and exciting. But I think it has to be done carefully. And there, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff being done with it these days, I think, so yeah. far. There's no manual for this thing. Like, you guys, like you would just. Okay, I got how many speakers. Let's see what I'm going to do with it. Yeah, I, there there isn't, and there's a lot of people trying a lot of different things. Now, what I did on the Nylon Curtain was I went back to the original multitracks, and mm-hmm. it was hard work. I mean, those each mix took me three days. I had to sit there, pick through the instruments, figure out which part. You know, if I pulled up a song, I forgot what it is. I pulled up one song that had eight acoustic guitar tracks. And I've got to sit there and listen through and figure out which ones are used in which balances and which portion. You know, when I first searched, when I first got the multi the multi tracks to Saigon, I'm going into the course. I'm you know I'm going, man, I hear a French horn. I and I played it for a buddy of mine, and he goes, mm-hmm. hey, that could just be the EQ on the string. No, you're right, it's a French horn. And I went back to the research, found another tape. There was another tape with French horn on it. You know, I went back to the original Maltese and, and it took a long time to figure out the effects, the balances, mm-hmm. what instruments, you know, there, there will be strings on a number of songs that a certain percentage of the strings aren't used. There's one song and I can't remember which one it is. And I'm like, damn, Phil. See, Phil didn't care. Phil just did what he thought was right. Mm-hmm. And so there's one song that has cello and violins on it and he didn't use the cellos. And so, but you can hear a little bit of the bleed of the violins and I'm sitting there going, nobody does that. Nobody records a string section all together live and just turns off half the mics because he doesn't like what the the violins are doing and they'll bleed in just a touch. But I think going back to the original multitracks and really studying the original record is uh, the only way I would want to do it. But, you know, there's, it's unfortunate that what they have now is they have artificial intelligence that can analyze a stereo mix. It yeah. tries to pull the vocal out and you try to pull the bass out. You try to pull the instruments out 
of a stereo mix and then at most that, and it sounds like crap. I mean, the algorithm mm. just sounds like a bad MP3. And and that's the yeah. way a lot of people are doing it because if you look at the amount of work it took me to do Nylon Curtain, most people, first of all, aren't up for that. Either that or they can't find the original multi-tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, and it's expensive. The way I did it w- required Sony to pull all those multis out of the vault and transfer them to Pro Tools and right. that's a good amount of money right there before you even start doing any mixing. The artificial intelligence, different side of it. You had also mentioned Giles Martin and what they're now doing with these Beatles recordings that were only four track recordings, how he's isolating drums, isolating, you know, guitars and Paul's vocal. Well, you know, what do you make of what they're doing on this Beatles stuff these days? I haven't heard that. I mean, like I said, the the only thing I've heard that I heard on speakers on a demo was I loved what he did what, with uh, Come Together. I heard it as like a demo. So, you know, they, they always play Elton John's Rocket Man and they played an R&B track that I hated. And then I yeah. heard his mix of Come Together, which, by the way, may have only been four tracks going through four speakers, but it sounded amazing mm-hmm. because, it mm-hmm. you know, it's such a sort of psychosonically musician sort of arrangement that weird stuff coming from different angles, you know, right. worked yeah. as opposed to why is the saxophone player coming out of the back wall? You know, <laughs> right. so I yeah, haven't heard the, the AI stuff and, you know, and it's, that's another thing that's really unfortunate about Atmos is, uh, you know, I'm very proud of the nylon curtain and mm-hmm. I try to tell people, please listen to it. And people that have heard it, loved it, but I can't get most people to listen to it. You know, I called Russell, and I said, Russell, man, yeah, I just did this. I'm really proud of it. You guys got to hear it. I think Lib's going to really like it because I really felt that I brought a little bit more power to the drums on the Atmos yeah. mixes than were in the yeah. original. And I said to Russell, explain. And I said, well, you got to go into your iPhone and turn off space, turn on spatial and turn off head tracking. And he goes, oh, I'm going to have to call you when I try to do this. I tried to explain <laughs> it to Lib. Lib's like, how can I hear this? Because I ran yeah. into Lib and I can't get anybody to hear it because it's so <laughs> convoluted the way they have it set up. That's my biggest beef with it too, uh, because it's not as simple as just sending a link to the thing. You know, it's a very specific way you have to go through to access them, and so that's that's definitely a challenge. I wish there were there was less of a barrier to get to get to these. Well, first of all, Apple had something which they've apparently removed, but I highly resented, which was originally you had to have. AirPod Pros or AirPod Maxes in order to play Atmos on the Apple platform. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, those are expensive. And by the way, I think the AirPod Pros sound like crap because they're earbuds. You know what I mean? Uh So it's like, yeah, yeah. They're forcing you into their structure and they're not even playing actual Dolby Atmos. There's no reason they can't stream it. You know, eventually, when you listen on headphones, Atmos becomes a stereo signal. Right. So there's no reason anybody can't play it on any pair of headphones anywhere, but laptops and computers don't seem smart enough for Tidal and, and Apple and these other f- companies to go, oh, he's listening on headphones, we'll stream it in stereo. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a train wreck right now, but I have a feeling it's not going to go away. I don't know why it started, but yeah. I have a feeling that due to immersive audio being in movies and being in video games and being, you know, when you get into virtual reality and people start having virtual rea- reality on their eyes, because of those formats, 
you're just going to make music conform to that by having it be spatial. You know, what's ironic about that is we've gotten so used to the bedroom producer thing, and it almost feels like that's going to get ripped away again, for better or worse. Well, because most people are doing it on headphones. Like the actual act of doing Atmos isn't prohibitive? Yeah, when I, when I did it, when I mixed it, my bottom line was the only thing I gave a crap about was headphones. Mm-hmm. And I did check it with speakers... Which is probably why all the people that people that invested a fortune in speakers aren't going to be as happy with my mixes. Because I'm going 90 percent of the people, if they hear this, are going to hear it on headphones. Very few people are going to put sixteen speakers in their in their living room. Well, I, right. I, I often heard the stories too, like in the, especially in the eighties, a lot of records. It's like you know you can put it in front of a great set of studio speakers, but how, how does it sound in the car? So l- let's take a cassette. <laughs> out to the car and see if it's you know happening at yeah, all there too though, yeah. though in theory the car should be a good environment for atmos if somebody's gonna you know i suppose if you have a bmw or a mercedes <laughs> somebody's gonna bother to put all those speakers in they'll also do something like alexa you know where they have these boom boxes that supposedly play spatial but i think that's just silly was it just the atmos mix and it's just serving a stereo comp of it, or are there two mixes, a stereo and a... No, well, the, the thing is, I mean, I was able to generate, when I was sending this out to Steve Cohen and John Jackson and Brian Ruggles to approve it, I was sending them a stereo binaural file. Mm. And mm-hmm. Apple sort of crunches it down, but in theory, and this is, I'm a little bit unclear on this, and I wish they would straighten this out, the streaming services get the full, you know, 16-channel mix or whatever. And then it's dumped down to you, I guess, either a 16 channels or sort of crunched down into a stereo stream. I'm not sure about this. I have to double check it. I don't think any decoding is happening on the user end, which is why the Apple thing is so offensive, because in their marketing, they make it sound like the decoding is happening in the earbuds or the Apple headphones. Mm. But I don't believe that those things are capable of receiving a 16-channel stream that they're dumping down at the stereo. I don't know if the streaming services, because there's something called a bin file, which a mm. binaural file, which is actually a sterile file that has all the encoding, the position in it. Because when you get down to it, you're listening on two speakers when you put on a right. headphone. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure exactly the streaming services, if they're streaming. I think what they're doing is they're taking the 16-channel file and then... If you have 16 channels on your end, they send you 16 channels. And if oh, they sure. don't, then they um, they probably send you just a stereo. The bandwidth would be ridiculous sending all that stuff. It's like quadraphonic, but it feels like it'll stick around because you can at least stream some manner of facsimile of it. You don't necessarily need to buy the four speakers and the, and the different records now. My opinion is quadraphonic was a vastly superior format because having mm-hmm. four equal speakers... Nobody has, you know, Sterling Mastering has equal speakers all the way around. But generally, in yeah. Atmos, you have your big speakers in the front and small speakers on the side. Quad had four equal speakers, and I think you could do pretty much anything in Quad that you could do in Atmos, aside yeah. from have a helicopter fly over your head. Yeah, right. make the most of that ceiling speaker there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the first few Billy records were, were done in Quad. You can play those on a stereo system. You know, they're different mixes, obviously, and they are even listening to them in stereo. They are very interesting mixes. They those as well seem to breathe a little bit more uh, like Street Life Serenade and 
I'm going to have to go look for the quads, especially if I do any more Atmos with Billy. I've got vinyl rips of them, I believe, but they did Piano Man, Street Life, and Turnstiles, maybe. I think there's a Stranger one, too. Stranger, there was like the Sony Super Audio, oh, okay. you know, disc. Yeah. Yeah, I went, I mean, I've gone through most of the archives looking at the tapes. Most of what I'm looking at is the Phil Ramone era, and I didn't see anything. I came up with this theory. Let me let me ask you what you think of this. I'm a big Jethro Tull fan, and Stephen Wilson's been ripping through their catalog for quite a few years now. And a couple people have complained, you know, but like, why do we need another remaster or another remix? And, you know, I'm like, well, you know what? It's like, you know, how many times have we heard, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and it's up to the conductor what approach they're going to take. And it, and it seems like, because when you think about recording music being relatively new and, you know, in the sense of humanity, you know, it's just, it's just this tiny blip. I wonder if we're going to get to a point where we're going to keep getting remixes, not just to put it out again, because, you know, your ear or Stephen Wilson's ear is going to hear a different interpretation of what's there. People are going to be like, oh, I like how so-and-so does a remix because he he brings out different elements than, than this other person. Yeah, I, you know, it's possible uh, and it may work with a younger generation, but people mm-hmm. that really know a record, it's hard to F with it. I mean, I just yeah. know because the battles I had with that. I mean, there's, there's one song I was mixing. I think it was Laura. There's a lot of effects used on that album phasers and flangers and they're different hardware boxes that all have their own sound and on laura i just could not match there's a dominant phase or flange on the entire song i just mixed it and i went you know what i fucking love this mix i love this mix this i'm just putting this mix in even though it doesn't have this one thing on it steve cohen Mm. listens to it says to me it's what the song was always meant to be it's fantastic though i miss that sort of flange sound (laughs) (laughs) so you know people get songs embedded there you know i was listening through to uh outtakes of the stranger just the way you are and it starts just on a straight fender roads and then so at some point going through it phil patches in the phaser on the on the roads and it's like oh i can relax now you know (laughs) what i mean and and then he turns the knob so it gets like 80 percent there when he patches the uh, the phaser on the roads and then he uh, turns the knob and you just go ah because it's that <laughs> iconic opening that the way that yeah. sort of warbles you know right and right. without that it's just like it irritated me mm-hmm. oh yeah just hearing it dry yeah i guess that's that's something i didn't even think of that those effects aren't on the masters that you're getting you're you're just getting like the dry audio so to speak oh pretty much to... yeah that's why you oh, saw with three days i could spend a day trying to match an effect even with the plugins they have i guess it was yeah you know... i mean i you know on once on one song on uh i guess it was pressure we kept pr- really good running notes we could not find the mixed notes which would have been extensive and accurate on, on the track sheet it said billy 25 millisecond delay harmonizer I put a 25 millisecond delay on Billy's voice and I mix a song. Mm-hmm. song everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. John loves it because, man, I, I love it. But the vocal sound is just a little bit different. And it made him uneasy. It's that thing I'm talking about, you know? And I so mm-hmm. I went and researched and Eventide had re-released their plug-in versions. So instead of just using a straight digital sound toys delay of 25 milliseconds, I bought the Eventides and loaded up a harmonizer and set it at 25 milliseconds. And even though that plugin was doing exactly this, but because the eventide algorithm was slightly different, it, it just made the vocal work. And it's funny on that song too, how you mentioned like, you know, people get you know, the original version of the song so ingrained in them. I remember when I first listened to Pressure, you know, because Billy would yeah. have a habit of running into the vocal cues after singing yeah, yeah, a line. Yeah. 
and you know the the half of the word intro you caught it on that on your mix but like it's there on the original and i'm like the first time i heard your mix i was like oh it's gone <laughs> yeah well the thing about that is first of all i never heard that before <laughs> oh, and all really? the times i've listened to that record or all the days or hours i spent on that i never mm. heard that before but it's only because i was isolating stuff and i had to be very careful because there could be you know, there could be somebody, you know, I had to really go through the stuff and compare it. And so the only reason that's gone is because you could only do that digitally. You, if you, if you had erased that piece or tried to fade it up really quickly, you would have heard it or it would have sounded clipped. But the it's fact so that gradual. I, could, yeah. I could do a, a very short ramp on the next word, uh, but I had never noticed that. And I thought it was, I thought it was funny that you noticed it because I had never noticed that until I mixed the record. Liberty's drum book that he did years ago had, you know, 11 Billy songs with the drums out of the mix. And one of them was pressure. And that was when I first caught what it was because the vocal cues are still there on that mix. And I was like, oh, he said intro. Okay. That blows my mind that you had to recreate the effects on that. (laughs) There were some on tape, but, but what I found was in general, they weren't, I, I had the, I really dug, I said, look guys, I know this record and I know it's these bizarre boxes. It's the Ursa minus space station. It's the lexicon prime time. It's a lexicon 224, eventide harmonizer. These boxes were all used extensively on nylon curtain. So I want the mixed notes. Mm-hmm. I really want the mixed notes. And we tried and tried and tried. And the only thing we came up with was I found a partial set of notes for pressure which Mm. I could use as a bit of a guide. So Elvis Presley Boulevard was on the Nylon Curtain Sessions, uh, and it's one of the few non-album B-sides that got released by Billy Joel. I mean, he's got a few B-sides out of live covers, uh, but this is one of just a few that are actually fully formed songs in the studio that didn't make the album. So do you have any memories of that song or why it got left off? And specifically, I'm really curious about the production on it, because Nylon Curtain has such a distinct production feel as opposed to, say, 52nd Street and then Glass Houses. Um, Elvis Presley Boulevard, to my ears anyway, has sort of a more wet, late 70s production element to it. So it makes me curious about where it was in the production of the album and how that maybe speaks to what the mixing can do to a record after the instruments are recorded. I don't recall the discussions about uh, Elvis Presley Boulevard, but I'll say a few things that I do know, which was... When I worked with Phil Ramone, when we were coming to the completion, mixing the final record, uh, we'd have he'd have a kid go into another room, and we would copy the last thirty seconds of every song and the first thirty seconds of every song. And he'd go in the other room, and he'd go, "All right, this is the sequence I, I want to hear the record. Cut the end of this song into the beginning of this one, the end of this one, beginning of that one." And the timing was critical between the songs, like how much distance was between them. And then he would come in. And he'd say, all right, now, he don't have to listen to the whole record. He'd go, all right, play the first one. So it'd be the end of track one at the beginning of track two. All right, make that gap longer. End of track two. That doesn't work. End of that one. It was always kind of exciting with Phil because he usually did cut with other artists, not Billy. He usually did cut more songs than were released on a record. And he would cut it down right at the mix point to decide whether or not. And that's when your record got really powerful. Because unlike a compact disc, you were removing maybe the less strong material. This was common with Phil. Prior to this, which is a compact disc, you had the time limitations of vinyl. So if an artist comes in and he's got 12 great song ideas, 14 great song ideas, 
you're not going to not cut them because they don't fit on the record. You're going to cut the 14 and they go, what are the strongest ones? So my guess would be, and it's only a guess, was that Elvis Presley Boulevard just did not fit in the sequence of Nylon Curtain. So you're saying, and, and this is all conjecture, of course, but it's possible that they just couldn't make it fit the sequence. Like there was just no way to get in and out of it. Yeah, it just may not have. It just may not have fit the album as a whole to their liking. Billy does have in his lifetime. He does have ideas that come up on records and then aren't used. Maybe never cut or fully flushed out, but then do come out on a later record. He'll re he'll revisit that idea. It's not a fully flushed out song. It may mm-hmm. be a rough verse and a chorus or something. So you know he does have a history of not all of what he writes at a particular time period winds up being completely developed and finished in that time. And I specifically remember that with this album with Goodnight Saigon, I know parts of that had been floating around for a few years and right. I couldn't have even imagined that going on a different record. Even a year later with uh, An Innocent Man, you know, and so it goes, there's no way that belonged on that record. It had to wait till its moment arrived right. for it. So they would do the sequencing before really getting to the mixing? No, the, the sequencing would be checked while we were in the final mix process. It sort of happened simultaneously. That's why I said he, he had a kid go in the other room and start doing, you know, cutting tape together for him. Obviously, the album, are, you know, albums not being the art form that they were in a lot of ways. Um, I, I feel like the art of sequencing a record has gotten lost in some ways. Not always. There's still a lot of records that do it really well. But uh, it's something that you don't see as often. No, it's true. And, and, you know, it started a little bit with a compact disc when you had shuffle play and you could, I remember I used to play Peter Gabriel so every night when I went to bed and I could like delete big time because it was not a good (laughs) song for going to sleep. So it started then. I don't know if, I don't know if anybody listens through to albums all the way through anymore. You know, I miss that thing. It was a little with the CD and with vinyl, like you had to get up, walk across the room. It was like a moment. And then you had to put the CD or the vinyl on and you played that side. Psychologically, it's very strange because when I first worked at MSR Recording, all the kids had iTunes and shared their folders. So it was the first time in my life I could play pretty much any song I wanted. And I didn't want to play any song. Yeah. It was just like, uh, I don't know. It's a a totally different experience. Talking about like just uh, measuring out the, the duration between the songs. When you're doing that now, are, are engineers just at the mercy of like how long Spotify is going to put between a track? Or are you guys still in control of that in terms of how much, you know, dead air, so to speak, goes at the end of a track? Well, you can control it to some degree by the dead air that you put at the end of a song. It started to become a little bit of an issue on compact discs, but for the most part, you can control it. Whether or not the player exactly duplicates it when you're online, I'm not sure. You've kind of used the phrase a couple of times. It was, you know, these things were another day at the office. What's that shift in perspective like from being like just in the grind of, of making a record and then you know, seeing which ones become hits and seeing which ones become maybe critical favorites or flops and things like that. How does your perception of these records change over the over time from when you're recording them to when they're released and then years after their release? Do they start to, to take on new perspectives or new dynamics as you see how the public relates to them? Well, I think one thing that's, it sounds a little strange, but you might find really common is after you work on a record, I don't listen to it for years and years. Mm-hmm. I never listen to it. And then I will sometime later on go back and listen to it. But it's almost like, it's it's funny 
when I go see Billy live, I worked on so many of the songs that like that kindles up memories. There's only one time I can think of in my career that I worked on a record and I went, that's a hit. And that was still rock and roll to me. And aside mm-hmm. from that, on any record I've worked with on anybody, you're working you know, to make the record as good as it can be. You're focusing on your job. You're focusing on the moment. And then what happens afterwards, you just never know. Some things are just total disasters and some things fly. And I've been involved with both. And I'm very curious right when a record's released to see how it's received. I would say that one thing that also informs that day at the office was Phil created an environment that was very comfortable and easy for his artists. And he did that by being really tough on the people that work for him. You were hyper vigilant. I never drank during a Phil Ramone session. When the session was over, I might have a glass of wine. But you know, mm. it, you were the guy that had to keep on top of everything. You had to keep to, on top of these masters. You had to keep on keep your notes. So when you go in and punch in on that track that's got a guitar solo, you know where it is. And then you add the, the tambourine at the end and get out before there's the other background vocal part. So it's pretty intense. And then the other layer is, as far as being a fan, is you want to drop that because you want to be one of the team in the room. You want to be <laughs> one of the guys. Do you know what I mean? I never. Yeah. My first photograph taken with Billy Joel was in 2019. I worked on eight records with him. I've asked him for one autograph. So you want to be cool with Lib. You want to be cool with Russell. You want to be one of the guys. So it's just sort of making that transition where you're yeah. focused, you're part of the team. The younger and further out, more engineering you are, the more you have to be hyper vigilant. And you don't get to share your opinions that much. You know, so if you think a song's a bomb, you would love to say something and you don't. And some and sometimes you're wrong. You know, if you think a song's great, you don't get to share that opinion either. That seems like a, a recurring theme too in Billy's camp, even on the live side, you know, with like Brian Ruggles, Steve Cohen. It's like these guys are basically working to make the live experience and you guys with Billy, the studio experience as barrier free as possible, as stress free so they could just focus on the task at hand. If there was a visitor in one of those sessions, everybody was uncomfortable. That was off. They were just waiting for the person to leave. Didn't matter who it was, if it was somebody's wife, somebody's kid, an executive from the record company. It was like they weren't part of this club. We'll all go back to normal once they leave. Especially when you talk about the humor, Lib and Phil constantly, Billy constantly busting chops, you know. Brad, thanks again. You are quickly rising the ranks of our most featured guest. Uh, Look out, Javers. He's coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, was this four times now? Four, yeah. He's got a solid lead. The the ball's in your court, Mr. Javers. Russell, it's on you. We always appreciate you coming on and being so game just to dive into anything we want to geek out on for a little while. This next segment is a few clips from the cutting room floor of our talk with Steve Cohen and John Small. These interviews were so fun to do. I remember waking up early on a Saturday morning in August, never having met John, having a brief Zoom call with Steve a little prior just to say hello. Didn't know what was going to unfold and learning about this Yankee Stadium project from the ground up was a thrill. And getting here to 
learn a little bit more about a younger Billy and going way back in the time machine further than 1990. Uh, This was a lot of fun to revisit. So I think you guys are going to dig this one too. Here's more with Steve Cohen and John Small. You got two of the old men of the Billy Joel world on together. It's like this <laughs> that's is, for uh, sure. I love it. Yeah, it's great. You're going to uh, it's it's history in the making. By <laughs> more than a hundred years, if you combine us. Oh, much more than a hundred years. Oh, absolutely. It's got to be sixty-eight. And what are you? Seventy-three. Me? Yeah. Seventy-five. Seventy-five. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So real well, quick, so so it's yeah. a, it's so you guys probably don't know. We're not going to get into origin stories, but when I started working for Billy in '74, I did a, I did one tour with them, and then Elizabeth, who you know we all know, um, yep. said to me over a drunken dinner one night, "You know what? You should move to New York and come work with us." <laughs> and I went, "Oh!" And I took that as a sell, you know, close out the apartment, put my records in stereo on the plane. Yeah, fly to New York, and I showed up at Brian Ruggles' house, and I picked up the phone and called Elizabeth. And I said, "I'm here," and she said, "What the fuck are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> so then she called up. She said, "Well, let me call John." And John was living in Northport. I was at Brian's house in Northport, and, and mm-hmm. asked John if he had a room for me. And John said, "Yeah, come on over." So I ended up. My first address in New York was on what was the address of the house, John? Um, it was Main Street, uh, 504 Main Street. 504 Main Street in Northport was my first address in New York, living with John and Sean. Too funny. Yeah, 1975, like spring of 75. So that's how long John and I know each other. That's amazing. Wow. That's some history. I think I still have one of your socks, Steve. Yeah, Brian, <laughs> John used to do my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Sometimes I always tell people, what do you do want to get into music? I'm like, take every opportunity. And you you showed up, <laughs> you know, you jumped, yeah. you you left. You know, my uh, recall of Steve was, you know, I'd been around a while and saw a lot of shows, but not until I saw a Steve Cohn show on Billy was my life turned around. I mean, I saw one of the most amazing talents, you know, emerging as a young man and doing this. And he always had a smile on his face and was as happy as could be to be exactly where he was in control and just having a ball, loved every moment. His music knowledge was incredible. And so it was wild. It was real, you know, a lot of times during the years, I put headsets on and listened to Steve Cole spotlights, you know, could be 10, 12, 15 spotlights. And he's talking to individual guys, you know, and it was like amazing. I mean, it was the, it was actually what I saw was the making of a live television director. Because if you can keep your cool and talk to that many people and know what you're doing, it's wild. Wow. Yeah. You know, thanks, John. I, you know, like we love each other and, and, you know, but we grew up together. I mean, listen, you know, we were, we were working out of uh, a, a townhouse on 92nd Street that Billy and Elizabeth lived in. 
John and I would get in the car and drive into the city. Um, he would park the car in Queens because he didn't want to park in the city. And then we would get on the N train and take the N train from Queens into Manhattan. And, you know, John was tour manager, production coordinator, you know, touring. You know, he basically took care of the band. He basically, you know, did all of the logistics for those first couple of tours. You know, and I was kind of like we were kind of, you know, joined at the hip because we, you know, I had to make sure that the production rolled. I, it sort of fell on my lap to sort of be the production manager, you know, when we got out there, because I just raised my hand and said, yes. And John, you know, John worked in the office and we, you know, and came out on the road and we we basically built those tour tours, those early tours together Um and and making it up as we went along. I mean, you know, there was no there was no roadmap for it. I mean, other bands were touring, obviously, but you know, we were dealing with an individual who was, you know, singular. We were dealing with Billy the band, you know, Elizabeth being the wife and the manager. Yeah. Um, you know, it was uh, it was really it was really unique. And you know, in a way, I think I got to do shit that I never would have been able to do. Because I said yes, because like, oh, okay, I'll do that. You know, like there's a hole there, I'll fill it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, that like, you know, as that evolved, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, on the film side of it, you know, John always had a passion for, you know, for television, for producing television, for directing television. And, you know, one of the things that happened with Billy was, you know, he wanted to control everything. He didn't like the idea of anybody coming in and, you know, making a television show uh, about him. And Elizabeth was very sensitive to that. And she kept it all in house. And, you know, the, fir- the, the one, the one thing that's out there that is um, that's directed by someone outside of our group was, it was Billy Joel tonight. And John, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were, like you were hands-on during all of that too, right? With Richie yes. Nan? Yes. So so even at that time, John was, you know, intimately involved in producing the television stuff. So really from the first stuff you've ever seen, I did some of the early music videos, then John took over and did the, did the, the you know, the big budget stuff. Almost, I would say 85% of the video material performance and, and video material is was touched and handled by... John Small. I'd probably say even more than that, probably 90%, which if you look at a guy who's been touring and, and doing this shit for, uh, what, 50 plus years now, that's remarkable. I mean, that's really remarkable. The, the amount, and, and it's not just loyalty, it's because, you know, John had this ability to understand what Billy wanted because they were in bands together. They, they grew up together. Yeah. Um, and you know, you get that kind of trust between an artist and an artist who becomes a producer, you know, you really can't get in the middle of that. You know, I, I I will tell you, and we can talk about Yankee in a minute, but I will tell you, I got to produce last play at Shea and, you know, it was another, there was a whole production company and another director that was doing the documentary. And we knew we had to shoot, um, we knew we had to shoot the concert and, you know, it, there was this conversation of who to get, you know, and there's a lot, there was a lot of luminaries that were doing these big concerts during that period, what, that was 2008 or something like that. So there yeah. was a whole roster of 
really accomplished directors that that everybody was bringing up. And I, John and I had a conversation and John said, you know, I should do this. And I'm like, well, of course you should do this. And I, and I ended up, I ended up not so much fighting for him, but really presenting to everybody else the reason that it was inevitable for John Small to direct that. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, so, so it's across the board there, there hasn't been, you know, with the exception of an international thing we did in Frankfurt, there hasn't been a, 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 a single, you know, live performance that, or video that John hasn't touched. So, you know, there, there, it's only logical that we, that we're here doing Yankee Stadium. That's my kind of start. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize how many pieces of the puzzle you guys both um, were involved in, you know, like you look at the credits, you figure, okay, well, John did some videos, Steve does the lighting, but it sounds like everybody's always pitching in on something. Well, it's funny. Like I told you before, you know, my uh, view of Steve was so high that when I got to direct Walk This Way with Run DMC and Aerosmith, I went to Steve to, to do the lights. And it was mm-hmm. funny because you know, I wanted to create a, uh, a stage performance of Aerosmith that Run DMC would crash. But mm-hmm. I didn't have the budget for the lighting rigs that you would need to do a stage, stage show for Aerosmith. So I went to Steve and asked him what to do. And he went, no problem. I'm on tour now with Hall Notes. I'll just use their rig. And that's what showed up was their <laughs> rig without them knowing. And that's what was used and made the, made the, the, the shoot happen as a real concert. It was fantastic. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. And, that, you know, and that's not the easiest thing to, to pull off to make it feel live when it's a, you know, a music video to a track as well exactly right you know well you know if you bring in the right audience and people have the right excitement now you can make it you know and also you know you got one of the best rock bands around with a character up front of steven tyler that you can't take your eyes off you know oh yeah and i think it what might have been steve's first music video of staying there for like 25 hours you know because it was a long long two days you know um (laughs) Did in a little theater in in Fort Lee, in in uh, Hoboken or something in a little theater in New Jersey somewhere right right over the bridge, and you know, you know, like who knew that that video would become probably one of the benchmark historical music videos ever? Like there's there's three or you know there's Thriller there's you know there's a few of few videos and and whenever they're talked about it, that's one of those videos. You know, you never know when you're sitting there that you're going to get something that's going to last for 40 years and, 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 you know, mean something for 40 years. So in fact, I have an article right here. It's uh, the best videos of all time and walk this way is number five of the all time greatest videos. Yeah. Yeah. You know, go figure, you know, and it's the second most played video of all time. Thriller being number one. Right. Right. Wow. And that throws the curve. So you're pretty much number one at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles were having like a video contest for something a couple of years ago. And, uh, so I got drafted, like, you know, sit and pretend I was playing drums. And even that was like 2017 or something. The guy's idea was we want to redo the Aerosmith run DMC video. Like that's how pervasive it is for sure. It's like a benchmark. People, you know, just know yeah. all about it. You know? Yeah. I mean, when you talk about drummers, I mean, come on, you were his drummer. Well, I mean, he was in your band, and you were the, the drummer, and then the two of <laughs> really? you were together in a band, and you played drums. So he looked at you the whole time. <laughs> That's true. We 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 sat right next to each other 
on rises. But I, I remember when, when I asked Billy to join the band, I just knew right from there that this guy was great. And, you know, he was, you know, he was just a baby and he didn't know how good he was, but he was just, I just saw it. I just saw that this guy had it. He could he could basically do anything he wanted to do. If you wanted him to be Richie Havens, he was Richie Havens. If you wanted him to be Paul Simon or Bruce Springsteen, he was that guy. He was just that talented. And a funny story about Billy once, we were in a music store together and Billy asked the, the guy at the counter, pass me that violin. So the guy gives Billy the violin Billy has the bow in his hand and he takes the bow and rakes it across the strings and nothing happens, no sound. So the guy behind the counter is laughing and I'm laughing. So Billy goes, what's so funny? I go, well, you got to put rosin on the bow so it resonates the strings. Otherwise nothing happens. So he couldn't get a note out of the, the thing. And he bet me that by tomorrow morning he could play Eleanor Rigby. And guess what? <laughs> he did. By nine o'clock the next morning, he was at my house, which he had to walk to, with the violin in his hand, and he's just sat down and played Eleanor Rigby. Oh, I, I, said, didn't that. I didn't hear that story. That's new That's, to me. I and I said, that. how did you learn that in one day? He goes, I haven't been to sleep yet. He stayed up the whole <laughs> night, you know, note by note, learning how to do this. And he said the hardest part was to get music to come out of the violin. He didn't realize that you always had to put resin on the bow. It was funny. But it... It, it was great. That's how good he was, that he could just play. You know, and a violin is a very technical thing where if, you, if your fingers aren't right or your bow action isn't yeah. right, it just screeches. Well, he, he made it sound great. It was like you, you felt like you were listening to a record. He just played it. Wow. Great. He's just a phenomenal artist. He really is. He had every element and still does to yeah. be great. He is one of the greatest of greats. And I'm, I've been, and Steve has been very, very fortunate to be by his side all this time, you know, to get to work with somebody that good and who, who really cares about what is craft. I mean, he is just great at it. Remember Roger Daltrey said that to me too once. He said, well, Billy, he knows his craft so well. And it's a, it's a funny word, but it's that English attitude of the way it's presented to you. So it was nice to see that somebody from across the pond yeah. really enjoyed who Billy was and what he did, you know? And I would get so many calls from different people that would tell me that, that they were looking to me and the reason they found me was because of Billy Joel or Garth Brooks. And, you know, which is, you know, a cool compliment. The last time somebody said that to me was Robert Plant. And he just told me that he thought the Billy Joel show at that Shay was amazing and that all the God shows were amazing until he asked me what they cost. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's why, you know, like us as fans, we're fortunate that you, you, you know, you've been, you've been here the whole time and been, you know, been able to capture these moments in time throughout his career because, you know, he's a once in a generation talent. I don't see anyone right now who's at that level and, you know, for, you know, 50 years of touring, each era is so unique and so special. And for us, it's so exciting to get glimpses of those moments, you know, from the past. It's just so exciting to, to see this stuff. Well, when you when you think about it, like, you know, 
the 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 benchmark concert the first real hbo music special of any artist was live from long island and you know john did live from long island with six was it six cameras yep with six cameras um you know that was in support of the nylon curtain tour and you know when you think that you know i still look at that today and and you want to talk about you know recording a historical a moment in time you know you got you got the quintessential billy joel that that performed in that kind of format for the next 30 years right from that show funny story about that show you know cuz i always get you know the whole russia throwing the piano cuz there was lighting the audience thing that goes way back <laughs> <laughs> because when John did Live from Long Island, two things. So one thing he didn't like was John didn't like the reflection on the top of the piano. So he sprayed a matte cover on it. And it looks so cool when you see it because it's it no reflection, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell Billy. And Billy used to do this thing at Big Shot where he would jump on the piano and do this kind of Mexican dance and whatever. And his feet couldn't move. And he was pissed. He was like, what did you guys do to my piano? which was after he was pissed at me for leaving the lights on to light the audience, to which John was like, you have to light the audience, Steve, so otherwise we don't know where we are and we're not going to see that level of excitement. And it was always a tussle between Billy about thinking that the lighting made the audience sit on their hands and not stand up, which sometimes is the case, but in this case it wasn't. But the whole, the whole lighting the audience thing goes, way, goes back to live from Long Island. Because if you look at Billy Joel tonight, which was, you know, that was when we were, you, you will not turn the lights on the audience. And Elizabeth was like, he says, don't turn the lights on the audience. So you're not going to turn the lights on in the audience. And you don't know where the hell you are. I mean, it's right. like, you know, you have no idea. You could be in a, in a soundstage. So you're just in a black hole, a black hole. So, so it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty interesting. And slowly over the years now, I like the shit out of the audience, even in a regular live show. Yeah. Because it's you're incorporated in the overall excitement and and figured out a way to design that where you know it doesn't feel like you're you know you're spotlighting the audience where they feel like they're part of the show. But that sh that show live from Long Island, which uh, you know we're talking about maybe doing that one next of going in and seeing what what's <laughs> what's left. You know yeah. you don't know out of the six cameras what was what was not used. You know most of the time John picks the best <laughs> shot. So. Yeah, but John, you didn't direct that one. That Jay did that, right? That Jay, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so who knows? But um, you know, it, yeah. it's all it's all you know. One of the great things about having all of this stuff and having the technology to rediscover it is, yeah, you can do just that. To me, I think the best story out of this whole show was was three months after it was done, and now it was airing on Disney. Maybe it's five months. It's airing on Disney, and. Uh, the Billy Joel organization, the, the legal thing gets sued by Yankee, by Major League Baseball, because we filmed the logo. But when we read the contract, it said that, you know, we were allowed to film everything. But the lawyers came back and said, well, they're, they're suing for a huge amount of money. So I said, well, I can fix that. And they just ignored me. They didn't understand what I meant. And so finally, the day of the verdict that's going to come in, I get a call and they said, so what was the thing you said you could do? I said, well, I'll show you. I'll come in and show you. They said, well, we're in court today. I said, well, I'll bring a, a video machine. So I go in there, we're sitting down and uh, he says, uh, the lawyer says, 
well, what do you what do you got? I said, well, when just call me as a witness and it will be over in five minutes. <laughs> so they call me as a, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, I don't remember the actual legal, but I wasn't on the list of witnesses. So the uh, defense, well, not the, it's the prosecutor didn't want me to talk, but they said because it was closing arguments, they were allowed to bring me up. So I came up, I rolled in a videotape machine and there is the shot of Billy Steinbrenner. George Steinbrenner. George Steinbrenner saying to uh, Billy, Billy, come to my office. I want to show you the Yankee Stadium uh, World Series rings. So Billy goes in. I have a camera. I walk in. Billy sits down. We're looking at the rings, which are amazing. They're in this case, and you see all the rings they won, and you know, and pictures of Mickey Mantle and everything. It's just you, you feel like you're in a space capsule. And all of a sudden, George goes to Billy. Billy, will you wear this hat during the game? And he gives Billy a Yankee hat. And the judge looks at him and goes, case dismissed. Uh, that was it. Uh, and, will you and, wear, will, he asked him, he said, will you wear a hat during the show? Will you wear the Yankee hat? Pass Billy the, the Yankee show. hat. Yeah. And yeah. Billy put it on his head. And that was it. Case uh, dismissed. Uh, it was funny. That's great. And, and it, was, uh, it was John Eastman who said that was amazing. Right. I go, well, I, I kept telling you, but you just didn't think I had anything, you know? That's happened twice in my life with saving somebody with, with footage that I, I shot. So it's just funny what goes down. There's all these behind the scene things that happen, like why I had my truck set to build it up, to, to shoot the show, to look at all the cameras. They go, you can't park here. I go, why not? There's nothing here. He goes, yeah, nothing here now. But he goes, during the show, this is where we put all the empty beer canisters. You know what they what they sell beer, those big silver things? Yeah, what are they yeah. Called, Steve? yeah. The kegs. Kegs. Keg. Say it again, Keg. Steve? Kegs. Keg, right. He yeah. goes, this whole place will be filled. There'll probably be three to 500. So I said, well, you got to find another place to put them because I can't move the truck. And they did. They found another place to put them. <laughs> It's just funny. You push your way around just to get the most for your for your artists, because yeah. that's all you really care. That's all you're fighting for. Working with Billy for for all of this time, you know, this all comes from him. You know, he's a natural. He hits the leather off the ball no matter what. His work ethic it has infected all of us. It's like you show up, you bring your A game. If you screw up, you admit that you screwed up and you you recover from it. And you don't spend a lot of time trying to overthink things. You know, he's notorious about saying he doesn't like to rehearse because why, why over rehearse? It's not fun. You know, yeah. and, and the other thing he talks about, which is, you know, if he has to think while he's performing, he'll forget what he's doing. If you give it over to muscle memory and to experience and to thinking on your feet, you always end up making the right decisions. That's one of the great things about working for this guy for, for, forever is that it makes it very simple to be successful because you're not, you know, fighting your own limitations and you're not setting goals that are unrealistic. You're just showing up, rolling up your sleeves and, and, and doing the gig. You know, anybody who's worked with them will attest to that fact. You know, all the band guys, everybody that's ever mm -hmm. been part of this organization before current, before, after current, whatever, says the same thing. I agree. You know, some of the stuff that, that made it on the Yankee Stadium I and mean, even 
in what we've heard so far of the uh, of the new tracks, is there a lot of kind of informal moments? Um, it sounds like, let's say, like at the end of I Go to Extremes, a lot of that like kind of walkie piano stuff was maybe improvised. But like he also says, like, you know, uh, why I go for ice cream. And it sounds like in You May Be Right, he's doing like a little bit of a Dylan impression. And I, I was surprised by that, you know, as, as everybody's going in and, and filming this monumental slice of history playing at Yankee Stadium. And, and these like sort of informal things are happening. Were these things he was doing anyway? Are these, uh, were there things in that concert he just did for the first time that time in the moment? Was there any thought about that? He always screws around with that stuff. And he mm-hmm. always likes to entertain himself in the band. So, you know, oh, they may have been unique for this show because we filmed them. But anybody who's gone to a Billy Joel show has seen him do this kind of stuff. He never likes to take it too seriously. And when he comes up with something that he thinks is funny, he'll he'll beat it to death because he thinks it's funny. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's uh, there 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 are a lot of bits that, you know, have fallen by the wayside and there are a lot of bits that have stuck around. You know, I mean, he stopped saying don't take any shit from anybody for a long time. And then he started saying that again. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, like the, I go to I go to ice creams. You know, clear as a crystal. Well, it gets emphasized because it's crystal. Yeah. Um, you know, there there were a lot of things that him and Lib used to do all the time, all the time, where they would screw up with things, and Lib would go out of his way to try and make him screw up. So, so you know, it, it goes to that whole thing about we don't yeah. take ourselves that seriously, right? And you know, there is there is a lightness in in the way we do all of that stuff. So yeah, I mean. You know, there may have been stuff that was unique, but it's always been the case. The screws around and stuff. I think one of the funniest moments I think I ever saw was in The Stranger. Billy's doing The Stranger, and the lights are are on Billy. Nothing's on the band. And when the lights came up on the band after Billy finishes the whistle, the whole band had their teeth blacked out. You remember that, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> it was hysterical. So oh, Billy, I mean, Liberty, he used to do the, he used to start whistling the stranger and Liberty would walk over to him and eat like saltine crackers. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. I mean, you know, that's the stuff. Look, we, you know, we've been going through archival stuff and I pulled together, you know, I think I told you guys, I pulled together through a couple of websites. some itineraries, you know, a lot of that stuff got lost in a fire and like from 75 to 84, Five, 10 years, maybe to almost to 1990, we, the, the amount of touring and the amount of shows is astronomical. I mean, we would do things like we'd finish a run of three show, a run of three weeks of the East coast, get on the plane, go to Japan, do two shows in Japan and then come back and do a run at Carnegie hall. Like, like in those days, we didn't think twice about it. And, and, you know, when you're working that much, the sheer volume of it. If you don't have enough stuff to get, to lighten it up for yourself and make it fun, yeah. make it funny. If you took it seriously, you'd kill yourself because you know it'd be like going it's, to the salt mines. Yeah. Good to be young. Yeah. <laughs> well, and now it's such a blessing. We play two shows a month, so it's like you gear up for a couple of days, and then you do the show, and then you got a couple of days to come down, and then and then so that's like two weeks out of the month, and it's. It's such a blessing. I, I, try, I am so not complaining, but it's, you know, it ends up now allowing us to kind of really focus on the quality 
makes each set list more fun and interesting to develop, you know, because it's a, it, you know, we're not doing five shows, three shows a week and we're not, right. we're not suffering from deficit. You know, I just saw, I just saw the fi- finale of the stones. They did, they just played their last show in Berlin and I looked at their itinerary and like these old guys were working. I mean, they were like, you know, it's tough to get off even if you're flying at the highest level, like at this age, it's, you know, it's, yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's not what it used to be when we used to fly Southern airlines in the smoking section in the back of the plane, you know, <laughs> like that was, you know, and staying up all night playing, then, then hanging out at the bar and being idiots and then getting up and doing it three days in a row. It's just, you know, best thing about all of that stuff is that we were all in it together. We were like, we were like, um, you know, if one guy showed up with a really bad hangover, there were 12 other guys that know what it felt like, so they'd cover for you. Like, right. it, that, that's what that was in, in those days. So, you know, not that case anymore. We just, you know, we, we, ordered, we, ordered, we don't order Chinese food. We order deli. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the one thing that I imagine, you know, what changed considerably, River of Dreams being the last studio album, when, when you no longer have to tour to s- support an album, you can... You can have a little bit more, um, not leisure, but you can dictate. Yeah, you can dictate your your schedule on what you want to do a little easier. I think that when you're not supporting a record, the pressure is off to a certain degree. And when you're touring behind, you know, what, 30 top, you know, 40 top 30 hits, you guys know the statistics. I mean, you know, when when you're when when you're touring behind that body of work, you know, the, the pressure is still there because the pressure is there to do a good show and a good performance and show up and, you know, and each one of those shows, you know, you think you're kind of on automatic pilot until the house lights go out and you go, holy shit, I got to fucking bring my game. But, yeah. but, um, but so I think that part of that is even more challenging for him because, you know, it's, it's how do you find playing scenes from an Italian restaurant over and over and over again, interesting and exciting and fun. Forget about piano, man, you know? Yeah. So, you know, and, 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 you know, I mean, I think about playing only the good die young. There hasn't been a show that we haven't played only the good die young in since only the good die young was written, you know? And, wow, and I think about that song and I go, you know, it's not a really challenging song musically to play. It's a shuffle. It's a rock and roll shuffle. And they play it every single night with with like fresh excitement every single night. So you know, there's different challenges than than supporting a supporting a record. And I imagine too, one of the challenges is you know you've got 24 songs in a night, and with <laughs> well beyond that, like you said, in hits, surely you want to be able to sprinkle in a deep cut here or there, but also hold the audience for a song that was it a top five hit as well that i'm sure that's a challenge yeah too. well i mean look we always you know if it were up to me it'd be you'd, you'd have nothing but deep cuts because like right. that's what i you know those are the things that i love but and the yeah. things that he loves to play and the band loves to play but you have to be mindful because you you're you're not serving yourself you're serving the audience so so you know and and Billy's super sensitive. There's a lot of artists, and I've been to a lot of artists. You know, I work for the Eagles. I've I've seen them do things where you know the audience gets up and goes to the bathroom, and you know they don't really care that the right. audience response isn't 
you know, Billy is very sensitive to that audience response. And that's yeah. why we set that we construct the show the way we do that, you know, that last 30, 40 minutes is mania. Just, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, part of the advantage now is like every time, and, and you know how this thing goes, we build a set list, we share, we share the set list and like, I'll put in three or four things. Brian and I'll go, let's try and do this one. The band will say, Hey, you know, this one's a good idea. And, and, you know, you'll put it in front of Billy and he'll, he'll generally go, nah, or, all right, let's try that. And then after they'll play it, they'll go, what do you think? And we'll all go like, yeah, let's play it. You know, he'll go, you sure? And then we'll play it. And he'll get no audience reaction. And he'll go, I told you so, but he'll still have played it. So, right. you know, yeah. that's, uh, you know, that's once again, the luxury of being able to, you know, play the garden once a month where the audience, you know, 80% of them don't really care what you play as long as they're in the room and they're hearing, you know, the 10 hits that they know they're going to hit every night. Metallica recently, they're like, okay, we've been playing Inner Sandman last for 30 years. So we're going to just move it to the number three slot for a while and it'll feel like a totally new song. So sometimes songs will still be there, but they'll just monkey with the order just enough to make it feel a little more fresh too. Well, I mean, listen, one of the greatest things about the Stones, they published their set list on Instagram. And it's like, that that to me is fascinating to see, first of all, how many old songs they play. You yeah. know, that 85% of it are songs, 85% of it are songs pre-1975. And, right. you know, and then, you know, Elton does the same thing. You look at his set list, it's all pre-1970. You know, it's a lot of old stuff and he, you know, screws around with the order in order to do that. But the, I'll give you a funny story about set lists. So we, we had come back, we were getting ready to do the 12 Gardens, the original 12 Gardens, Um in 2006 or something Six. like that, 2005. Yeah. And I had this harebrained idea. And I said, you know what? Why don't we open with Piano Man? And Billy was like, what? Tampa. Yeah, I mean, let's open with Piano Man. That's who you, let's get it out of the way, right at the top. That'll be that. We'll have done it. you know. And I made this sort of convincing argument, but I thought it was a convincing argument. And he did it. And we did <laughs> We did it, and after we did it, the first song, he was like, "Well, we'll never do that again because <laughs> it didn't belong there." You know, right? It, right. it just didn't belong as the opening song. But that just goes to show you how uh, how generous he is about this, and how unprecious he is about all yeah. of this. You know, yeah. so so. Uh, but yeah, that that'll never <laughs> we'll never. Open I re- it I remember seeing that set. That set list was wild. You had like Blonde Over Blue in there. It was just, you. it was, there was a lot thrown against the wall that night, if I recall. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and you know, every time we start something, every time we start after time, we haven't had any time off. I mean, since 2013, we've been playing consistently. Yeah. We haven't stopped. Um, but, you know, whenever we would have time off and there'd be new rehearsals, it's like, let's try this one, let's try this one, let's try this one. And, you know, it'll start out. I mean, I remember the entertainer. The entertainer was out for a very long time. And we he said, let's bring that one back. And he did the entertainer. And now it's a staple in the set. We do it every night, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so you know, Everybody Loves You Now was a song he hadn't played for years. That was a new one. And, and that shows up a lot. So, you know, it's great having all these great songs to be able to do. Yeah, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, right. <laughs> with, with everything coming out, you know, with the Yankee Stadium and all, all of this, 
you know, lately there's been such a big Billy renaissance where I feel like once again, he's reaching a, a new young audience, you know, like he was with Stormfront between the TV show placements and, you know, the TikTok videos and all this stuff. Has that informed any of these choices to try and kind of, you know, dig through things and come up with something fresh to come out with? I think the renaissance really started in 2013. I mean, it started before suddenly Billy was cool again. I think that with social media, you know, for example, Vienna was never a hit, was never a single, and is the big, probably the second or third biggest song of the night. Um, you know, the TikTok thing with Zanzibar has turned that into a, a thing. For the longest time is now a TikTok, is now an Instagram thing. That, you know, that, I mean, what, how it informs it is that the audience, the reaction of the audience is bigger because most of the audience is is uh, aware of this stuff and a lot of the audience is skewed younger i mean everybody says it's eight to 80 but i mean i go to the garden now and 30 percent, 40 percent of the audience is under 20 is in their 20s so that's grandparent shit that's like hearing your grandfather's <laughs> eight track of the stranger you know if you do the right <laughs> so yeah so uh yeah i mean i think all of that stuff is 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 important and when things appear certain places that will then inform it hey billy will say hey i heard this on what and what a such and such we should do that song you know so it will inform that sometimes steve john thanks so much for taking the time this summer and we're so glad we could continue the conversation here you know and on a personal note i'm still grateful to be involved in that small way in the yankee stadium project and so to get to talk about it with you both and get to really learn more about billy's career from two of the longest tenured players so to speak uh real treat and we hope to have them both on in the future yeah for sure what great conversations uh great people to get to know we we also met them briefly uh in sag harbor was it september or august that was the end of august it was like two weeks after our conversation actually that's gonna do it for uh you know essentially year three yeah this is uh wrapping up year three for all intents and purposes Mm -hmm. uh i mean obviously you know we debuted in february of uh 2020. Yep. A couple of weeks shy, but for all intents and purposes, it's been three years. And I uh, really want to thank you all. You know, we started out and we were happy to just get 25, 30 listeners an episode. And, uh, yeah, we cracked 100,000 downloads this year. Yep. So many people have been uh, very um, generous with their time with us and, and <laughs> giving us these great stories. And so many of you have, um, you know, supported us just um, just by sending us your thoughts on, e- on email and your, your encouragement. You know, every like every comment on the Facebook page and Instagram is inspiring, keeps us going. Yeah. Thanks. And, uh, you know, we promise to, uh, keep bringing you great Billy related content in 2023. Next year is the 40th anniversary of an innocent man. So I think we're going to find some ways to touch on that record and that time frame um, a bit. So that's exciting with Billy's tour dates coming up. We hope to cover some of that stuff and hopefully the vinyl release vinyl box set volume two so there's going to be a lot to sink our teeth into next year awesome things that i'm excited to to get into these first three years have been a blast and i couldn't have asked for a better partner and jack to uh take on this crazy adventure with 
I'm excited for what we've got coming up next year. And uh, you know, Michael, thank you for uh, bringing me into this project. And uh, yeah, I've learned a lot from you in terms of, oh man, a little bit of everything here, you know, <laughs> just in terms of uh, running a successful operation like this. You know, I came in, had never really done podcasts before, and Mike had an, an excellent blueprint here that's become a great playground for both of us to run around in. You know, we, it wouldn't be nearly as successful if he hadn't conceived of this um, very productive and successful framework and has stuck to it and has uh, been adamant about keeping quality control up. You know, anytime when I was like, ah, that audio is fine, he'd be like, no, it's, <laughs> we're not doing this. Like, Goes all Phil Ramon on me, throw shit across the room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but um, no, but it's 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 great. You know, it's a great standard to live up to, and I think it's uh, affected other aspects of my life, mostly my sleep deprivation. But that's that's besides the point. <laughs> no, that is the point. <laughs> He's slowly driving me insane. You can't see, but I'm blinking twice for help. <laughs> you know, we're just happy to be the hub to get some of these things on the record and do our best to tell the Billy Joel story. We're grateful for all of you out there too who listen to us week in and week out. You keep the engines running and it's a lot of fun, a lot of work, but we've got so much more to tap into. And like I said, I'm just super excited for next year and beyond. So so why don't we um, start to wrap up the year? Did we do the email thing? No, no, we got to do that real quick. We almost forgot. So with that said, let's uh, get your thoughts on these odds and ends and uh, the year in general. Is there anything that's jumped out to you from our conversations over the course of 2022? Your input and your feedback and your stories are awesome. So uh, send it along to us, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can comment or shoot us a message there. If you forget all of that, just go to glasshousespod.com. And that's where all of our stuff is. So you can find our YouTube videos, all of our episodes, links to subscribe to us and all that fun stuff. So that's a nice one-stop shop where you can find everything we're doing. And if you happen to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please, for the love of everything holy, give us that five-star rating and positive review. Every five-star rating and positive review prevents us from getting the guillotine. They, they keep an eye on all of us. We see them outside. It's, it's disconcerting. That one went off the rails. Every five-star rating and positive review is an indication that we are a, a damn good podcast. And, you know, what happens is uh, the algorithms and the formulas and the whatnots see that positive interaction. And as a result, will uh, serve us up to more potential listeners, which makes that a fast, easy, and free way to help us grow the community. We're going to wrap up 2022, guys. It's been a lot of fun and we... Can't wait to kick off 2023 with a lot of fun things. So we will bid you adieu and happy new year. We'll see you again in the new year. See you guys soon. Every year a souvenir that slowly fades away. Thank you. Happy New Year, Long Island. Don't take any shit from anybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.